Whatever fire encounters, it changes. And last week, we kicked off a series we're calling Two Big Questions, where we're looking at the questions we ask you to consider at the end of our service, which are, God, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do about it? Every week across all of our campuses, we ask you guys to respond to God using those two questions. And some of you, you might come down and get prayer from someone on our prayer team. Or you might go to a cross and write something on a piece of paper and pin it to the cross. Or you might go light a candle. And if you go to any Seacoast campus, you will find a candle station. And today I'm going to explain why we do that. So the candles that we use at Seacoast, they're symbolic of fire, which in scripture almost always represents the power and presence of God. And about a month ago, I told you why the biblical writers so often use fire to describe God, because fire can provide everything we need for life. It can provide food and water, light and warmth, protection and safety. But at the same time, fire consumes everything it encounters until nothing remains. And what great respect is due to something that has the power to both give us life and yet consume us completely. That is why the biblical writers so often used fire to describe God. You see, just like God, fire is strong and powerful. Fire brings light into darkness. Fire changes everything it encounters. The writer of Hebrews tells us our God is a consuming fire. And God told us through the prophet Jeremiah, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. I mean, at first Listen, those verses don't sound all that positive, like who wants to be consumed and who wants to be broken to pieces. But what if the fire of God's presence is the pathway towards the life he died to bring us? What if that's true? Because there are a few things that fire does really, really well. And this will be our outline for today. Fire reveals, fire destroys, and fire refines. So let's look at that first one for a second. Fire reveals. How many of you have ever been in a power outage? Anybody? Pretty much all of us, right? And and what's your first thought during a blackout? Go ahead. Shout it at me. Candle. Flashlight. Some of you are thinking, what happened to the Wi-Fi? Can someone fix that? Well, before there were flashlights in our homes or on our phones, our solution to a blackout was a candle, right? Because a candle was our way of having the benefit of fire that in a way that's safe and under control. And while the candles we use here at Seacoast are a tangible representation of the fire of God, they are not a perfect one because there is nothing safe about the fire of God. And the fire of God will never be something that we can control. And there's a story in the Old Testament that helps us understand this. And it also just so happens to be the biggest showdown in all of scripture next to the cross. In first Kings, we meet the prophet Elijah. And at this time, Israel and all the surrounding nations had been in a drought three years, no rain. And not only were they in a drought, but they were also under the leadership of King 
Ahab, who was Israel's worst king to date. In fact, in in chapter 16, we read Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. How'd you like that to be your tagline of how you're remembered? And not only was he a terrible king, he was married to Jezebel, who was a terrible queen. And you guys know this. You know Jezebel was awful. The reason I know it is because none of you ever thought when your baby girl was born, what should we name her? Jezebel, little baby Jezebel. None of you thought that. That didn't happen. Because Jezebel worshipped the pagan god Baal, Ahab, and many in Israel also began to worship the pagan god Baal. Well, eventually Elijah was sent by God to get involved, to call the people back to God. And for this, Ahab hated Elijah and had been looking for a way to kill him. So when he saw Elijah coming, he shouted, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Well, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then serve him, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people agreed. So the prophets of Baal went first. The text tells us they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. This is where we get trash talking from right here. (laughs) Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. And listen to this last verse. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. As a side note, this is a great reminder to us of just how hollow idols are. Whether it's a relationship or a career or a dream or an addiction, If we value anything more than we value God himself, if we look to anything other than God to satisfy us, then we should not be surprised when it fails us. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And he repaired the altar of the Lord by arranging 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he cut up the bull, put the wood on the altar and placed the bull on the wood. And dug a trench about eight inches deep around the entire thing. 
And remember what the challenge was. The God who answers by fire, he is God. So what did Elijah do next? He dumped three large jars of water all over everything. This is a bad idea in my mind, but Elijah had bigger faith than I do. And Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I, your servant, have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and even licked up the water in the trench. Now we could do an entire series on just this chapter, but for the purpose of this series, what did the fire of God accomplish in this moment? It revealed the one true God to everyone who was standing there. And to anyone who would hear about it later, this fire revealed that Elijah's God was the Lord. Because fire reveals what cannot be seen in darkness. And the fire of God specifically reveals what cannot be seen in the darkness of deception. And when God decides to penetrate that darkness, it has no choice but to retreat, surrendering to the light of God's truth. So fire reveals that much is clear, but fire also destroys. And that's our second point. In this moment, when the fire of God fell, there were many things that were destroyed. From the text alone, we can tell that a bull was destroyed. A pile of wood was destroyed. An altar was destroyed. The soil was destroyed. But more important than all of that when the fire of God fell, deception was destroyed. Confusion was destroyed. All ambiguity about who the one true God was, was destroyed. While we can certainly celebrate that, we don't like it when things are destroyed in our lives. Because it often feels like an ending we don't want or we're not prepared for. But how many of you know that some endings are necessary. Some endings are necessary. Some things may need to be destroyed if we're going to live in the freedom he died to bring us. And some of you might be thinking, you know what? You're right, Adam. Thanks for this. My marriage has been really hard lately. I think maybe I should just let it die. Maybe I should just destroy that. Well, I doubt that's true. But there may be some things in you that need to die in order for you to have the marriage you want. For many of us, that may look like our pride may need to die. It may need to be destroyed. Our resentment may need to be destroyed. Our fear may need to be destroyed. Our shame may need to be destroyed. And, and keep in mind that all of this happened on Mount Carmel, which in Hebrew means orchard. Or vineyard. We also we need to keep in mind that this was an agricultural society. So they understood one thing that this day when the fire of God fell on an orchard, they knew the only time you would set fire to an orchard 
is when you needed to burn away the chaff, the dead material that would threaten what the farmer actually wanted to grow. The only time to burn an orchard is when you are preparing to grow something new. So the question for us is this. Is there anything in our lives that must be burned away by the fire of God in order for something new to grow? Any confusion, any deception, any fear, any shame. Paul, the Apostle Paul, seemed to understand this idea. It, it's, it's a thread that runs throughout all of his letters. This idea of old things dying and new things coming to life. But in Romans 6, he says this, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. Paul knew that there was great purpose in Christ's death. And he also knew that there was a death he himself would need to die if he was going to experience the life he was made for. For Paul, that was a death of pride and prominence as a leader of Judaism. That part of him would need to die if he was going to be reborn into new and abundant life. A different way to say this so that we understand that none of us are exempt and it applies to every single one of us is this. We will be dead for as long as we refuse to die. We will be dead for as long as we refuse to die. But in that moment of surrender, when we're finally willing to let the fire of God have its way, burning away anything in us that would keep us from living in freedom, that is the moment when we find ourselves grateful that the fire of God destroys old things so that new things can grow. So fire reveals and fire destroys. The fire also refines. And we can see this in Elijah's life. Elijah, who was ready to serve God, was given a very strange first assignment. A chapter earlier, God told him, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now you read these verses and none of them make sense. Because ravens are scavengers. They steal food. They don't supply it. And brooks are among the most vulnerable sources of water. Because they're the first to dry up. Especially in a drought. So none of this makes sense unless God is behind it. You see God before Elijah was ready Face this showdown with King Ahab, God wanted to refine him. Remember, Ahab wanted to kill him. God intended to refine him through trial. Because Kareth, which in Hebrew means cutting, God would begin cutting away some things in Elijah in order to prepare him for his next assignment. And we have to keep in mind, too, this wasn't just true for Elijah. If you remember, Daniel faced a den of lions. Paul faced a thorn in his side. Abraham faced an unlikely promise. Joseph faced 11 jealous brothers. Moses 
faced an angry Pharaoh. David faced a giant. And we face an enemy who wants to discourage, deceive, and divide us. But we belong to the God who is infinitely greater than the enemy we face. We like the idea of being refined until we understand just exactly how it is accomplished. Because most of the time, the process of refining is achieved through trial. And many times we see suffering as something that is done to us. When in fact, suffering can be something that is done for us. You see, suffering, even the self-inflicted kind that we are responsible for, in the hands of an all-creative God, can be used to bring about new freedom in our lives. And even though that gives us hope, I understand that it is still hard. Some of you feel like you're in Kareth now, and God is cutting some things away. And that's difficult, and I get it. Our youngest, Emma, is now a college senior, and she's about to graduate, and she's just gotten engaged. No, 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 no clap. I'm not there yet. I have not done well with this because I, you know, I think there's a contractual obligation of every father to hate the boyfriend for a while. I haven't finished that. I'm working it out. But Jesus told me when she was born, you got to hate the boyfriends for a while because I need him to know that if he hurts her, they may never find him again. That's important. It makes me afraid. Because I don't want her to get hurt. But throughout the whole process, I have sensed God is refining me. Even though I don't remember asking him to. Eugene Peterson describes it this way in the message. He says, the day is coming when you will have it all, a life healed and whole. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Pure gold put into the fire comes out of it proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps all this up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. And if you consider how gold is refined, all of this makes sense. The goldsmith exposes the gold to tremendous heat until it's completely liquefied, bringing the impurities to the top and carefully skimming them off. Does this over and over and over, heating the gold, bringing up the impurities and skimming them off, takes a great deal of patience on the part of the goldsmith. 
And the only way for him to know when the process is finished is when he can look down into the gold and see his own reflection. God has said about himself that he is love. And in the hands of the God who is love, the trials we face, they refine us. It's not something that's done to us. Very often, it's something that's done for us. So that we can live in the freedom we were made for and so reflect the love of God to the world. So in a biblical context, fire often represents power. But over the centuries, mankind has used fire very differently than how God has used fire. You see, mankind has used fire to intimidate and conquer and possess because mankind uses fire to put people into power, but God uses his fire to put power into people. And let me wrap this up with an analogy that will help us. All of you are familiar with Air Force One. It's the plane that our U.S. president travels around in, and it's quite a plane. It, it can travel at 600 miles an hour, almost the speed of sound. Has three levels with offices and conference rooms and sleeping quarters, two full kitchens. It has a medical suite and an operating room. It's a mobile command center in times of crisis. But did you know that Air Force One is not Air Force One until the president steps on board? It's not until the president of the United States is inside the plane that it actually acquires the identity for which it was made. Until then, the plane is simply called Special Air Mission 28000. The plane gets its real identity when it is indwelled by the one for whom it was made. And we are made in quite the same way. We can never know our true identity and purpose until we are indwelled by the one for whom we were made. We have to remember that our God is a consuming fire. And with holy fire, he intends to reveal himself to us. And he intends to destroy anything that would keep us from the freedom he died to bring us. And he intends to refine us so that we can reflect the love of God to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are at work in ways that we often don't even see. That you are committed to revealing yourself to us. To burning away anything that would keep us from the freedom we were made for. And to refining us. That we might reflect who you are to this world. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.